This podcast, this podcast is brought to you by the Witt School of Governance. For more information, visit visit their website on www.wits.ac.za/wsg. Here to open our session on the book that our dear advocate Nukaitobi has written. And I hope that everyone is excited to learn more about uh, this exciting second book, which really takes us on a journey to understand the land question in South Africa. Before we can do so, I'd like to kick off by just making clear the house rules that are guiding our gathering today. As I've mentioned, thank you to everyone who's joining us from different corners, those who are joining from Facebook, those who are with us on Zoom, we thank you for your time. I would like also to indicate that if you have any questions, please make use of the Q&A function. That is where we will be following up on the questions that you have for those who are with us from Zoom. You may also alternatively use the chat box, which is also available for your use to raise questions or comments. For those who are with us on Facebook, also make use of the comment button. We will be able to follow through your comments, your questions, and attend to them through the Zoom live that we have. Please take note that keep your mics muted. They will be all muted. And should you require to say anything or raise a question, the facilitator will attend to you and unmute and then after you've raised your question, you can then be muted. Remember to keep your questions short or your comments short so that we can attend to as many people as possible. Do take note that this gathering will be recorded and is available on the WSG YouTube channel. You can access it any other time for any further engagements that you may need. Of course, about the book. In relation to today's book, I would want you to keep in mind that you can make your own purchase on Take A Lot. You can also get a copy on Loot, Exclusive Books, Reader's Warehouse, and Graffiti Books. These are the spaces where you can actually access the book by our dear advocate, Tembeka Nkaitobi. I just want to move on to give you a bit of introduction on our speaker today. But firstly, let me introduce the moderator, Professor Mzukisi Kobo, who is the head of the Witt School of Governance and serves as President Cyril Ramaphosa's economic in the Economic Advisory Council. Previously, he was chief director responsible for South Africa's trade policy at the Department of Trade and Industry. Prof. Kobo currently sits on the board of Corruption Watch. Of course, our dear speaker, Advocate Tembeka Nukaitobi, is a lawyer whose work focuses on constitutional law, also a writer on topics of land, history, constitutionalism, black intellectual thought, and critical reflections on legalism and conquered people. He has written the critically acclaimed book, The Land is Ours, which is about the loss of land, the origins of constitutionalism in South Africa, and the lives of South Africa's first black lawyers. The second book, which we are gathered to understand more about today, 
is titled Land Matters, examining the flaws and possible avenues for change in South Africa's land reform policy since 1994. Without taking much of your time, I do hand over to our moderator, Prof. Mzukisi Kobo, to take us through other deliberations for the day. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, Ruth, for, for introducing Advocate Ngobai Tobi so well, and I really look forward to a conversation with him. We're going to touch on a number of areas uh, that his book discusses. Land is a very emotive issue in South Africa and in the African continent. It's tied to notions of identity and belonging, and it also holds prospects for carrying the promises of the country, for creating intergenerational wealth, uh, for addressing historical inequities. And all of these are things, themes that we are going to discuss with Tembega. Writing a book is a very, very lonely journey. I speak from experience. It's a grueling exercise, very little joy. You grumpy most of the time. And I just want to start at that point. What made you, Tembega, to sit down and write this book? How was the writing process in putting this fascinating manuscript together. If you can just take us through that, many people may not have been through that experience, many are aspiring, and maybe if you can share your reflections on your journey. Thank you, Professor Kobo. I just want to start off by saying how exceedingly happy I am to have been invited by your institution and your institute in particular, the VET School of Government. I'm also very pleased that you are the head of the VET School of Government. It's so symbolic at so many levels. And uh, I've been watching the progress under your leadership, and I think that uh, it is a much more exciting place. And I think the future is very bright with, with you as the leader. And, Thank you. Yeah, and obviously to the, the person who introduced us here, uh, Ruth, I haven't been introduced that well before, so I'm very pleased with <laughs> that introduction. I often often uh, people even slaughter my surname, but uh, it was you know uh, pronounced so fluently. I was very pleased by that as well. So... It's an interesting question, the, the question of the process of writing a book. In general terms, I mean, I've now written two single-authored manuscripts. One was a lot longer than this, sending all 300 pages. The land is ours, and much more difficult to write because it was all new territory that I was thinking about and, and writing. But in the course of writing The Land is Ours, there was a lot of land-related material that I had collected. And because there were many themes that were being explored in The Land is Ours, I couldn't fit in all of this land-related material into that book. And otherwise it would have become unmanageable. It would have become too long, too cumbersome, and completely unfocused. So I put that material in because that book, its primary focus was to excavate these lives of the first black lawyers, and particularly how they used the law to resist the implications of the Native Land Act. In 2018, a couple of months after the publication of the Land is Ours, Parliament then begins this process of debating whether or not the Constitution ought to be amended. And a sheer coincidence that uh, it is like a month after the publication of my book that that topic is then debated. And my book only partially, the land is ours, only partially covers the land question and only focuses on how the dispossession occurred, uh, particularly in the Eastern Cape and in the uh, KZN and the transfer. I was asked whether or not I would write a book 
an out of book at the time on expropriation without compensation. And uh, I reflected on this and I thought a book on expropriation without compensation would simply not cut it. What we need to do is to expand the uh, land question as a whole. The actual process, I mean, I had material that had been collected which had not been used. So I had unused material, particularly on the historical stuff uh, in the book. You will see that in part one of the book, I did primarily with history. So that material comes from research I conducted during the writing of the Landis Hours. The completely new material that I researched now is the material on cattle dispossession. Um, the references to the Van Riebeek journals and the references to documents that were written by some of the Eastern Cape colonists. And then, obviously, secondary material and some documents that came from a report prepared by Theophilus Shepstein in 1846-1847. That's all completely new material that I researched now. It's a good question also for another reason, because it makes me remember how valuable the UCT African Studies Special Collection was, because the Shepstein Report, I had been looking for it. I'd never actually found it, and many books that refer to it. And it was UCT African Studies Special Collections Department that actually gave me a copy. At the time, the copy was in digital form. And to have lost that, I don't know the extent of the loss, but to have lost some of that archive uh, material, I think is a tragedy for many of us who research in this area. I think it's also a tragedy for the country as well. So I had written probably the first section of the book by the beginning of 2019, when the following section began, and I presented a paper, I think it was at Forte, I presented a paper at Forte, which they initially wanted me to talk about land in general, but the focus of that paper, it was actually a Steve Biko lecture, and the focus of that paper, from my perspective, was to be on reparations and land as a theme. And in the book, I've split that paper into three separate chapters so that it can be readable because it became too long and unreadable at 13,000, 14,000 words. So, but now it's much more readable at 6,000 words in a chapter. And then 2020 came, and I suddenly had a lot of time on my hands because of the lockdown. I was forced for the first time in my life to stay in one place for 24 hours. And I have all of this material that's collected, which has not been used. And a friend and a colleague, in fact, a friend and a colleague of both of us, Wendy Lesitlobo, then phones me one time and says, why don't you collect all of your newspaper articles and turn them into a book? And I said, yeah, that's a good idea, but I can't really collect newspaper articles. I have to write a proper book. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he kept pushing, you know, kept pushing and reminding and pushing and pushing. But, yeah, I do thank him profusely in the book for pushing. So the process itself, I mean, is mostly just getting the facts right, like getting the events, this is what happened, and moving on to the next chapter, just making sure this, this is what happened and you've got references to it. And then coming back to it later, making it sound beautiful. In other words, you know, the creativity element to it. Once you've got the basic facts of what transpired, then you come back to it and you do the first editing, which is how do I make this sound interesting? Because in the topics that I write about, many people are not necessarily interested in reading about the koi koi being dispossessed of cattle in 1652. 
So you've got to create a market and create an interest. So which means some work needs to go into the way in which the story is told, because a good story can be spoiled by a poor presentation. So yes, and then I think this thing then took a life of its own from 2020, because once I felt I had broken the back of it, in other words, I'd done about a quarter, I just couldn't stop. I had to do it every evening. I kept coming back to it every evening. And then once you've got the first draft of the manuscript, you start feeling good about yourself and uh, circulating it to your friends and some of them reading it, critiquing it. I had a lot of those. I think I had about five or six people that I used as a springboards to read, reflect, and tell me where I've got it wrong and tell me where I could improve. And uh, a lot of their names are mentioned in the book. And thereafter, it was with the publishers. The publishers looked at it. They liked it. They sent it to their own editors. They made it even better. And uh, here we are. Fascinating. I'm taking notes as you speak because uh, one of the things we want to do at the school is to have the sort of seminars where we talk about the writing process and to sort of break it down to individuals, make it easy, and not just say this thing is difficult, but actually create a bridge for others. I am itching to get into some of the issues of the questions that are raised in this book. And I must say, this is really a fascinating, fascinating read, a lot of historical depth. And as I was reading it, it was clear to me that you were grappling with ideas as you were writing. It's a very engaging book. It's not a dry legal book, you know, for those who may think that because you come from a strong legal background, this is a legalistic book. It's a very fluid, easy to relate to, lots of good examples. Now for you, Tembeka, what are some of the major, major themes that you were really grappling with and, and that you want to stand on the mountain top and profess on these themes? Yeah, I think the one topic that I really got very interested in was the theme on cattle. I think it was understanding the extent to which cattle were a trading stock for African people. And cattle were distinct from land because although land could not be private owned, quote-unquote. Cattle could. And also the various uses of cattle. Cattle could be eaten, they could be put to labor, they could be used for milk, they could be used as forms of exchange, they could be used for cultural exchanges, they could also be used in circumstances of death. And so you had most of that usage today has been transplanted by cash, keep money in the bank. So this idea that cattle, in fact, in African society were a form of cash. Thinking about land without thinking about cattle is an incomplete way of thinking about land. But at the same time, we have not researched as a country the impact of cattle dispossession We have focused a lot on the impact of land dispossession. And yet, if we were to look at what did it mean from an economic, an African economic perspective, to lose so much cattle over a sustained period of 300 years. And so I began to cover this into three phases. 
Phase one being really the arrival of Jan van Riebeek in the Cape between 1647 and 1652, and the dispossession of the Khoikhoi. Phase two being the role of the British, which was very, very disruptive to African lives. In fact, I think the British is probably one of the vilest empires around. And there are exchanges and encounters with Africans in the Eastern Cape, in Natal, in the Transvaal. I came to a rough number of probably 5 million cattle that I think were taken. And if you apply the multiplier effect, a female cow will probably give birth in its life six, seven, or eight times. You can see how much loss, in fact, Black people sustained. And then the final phase being the so-called betterment era during the apartheid era from 1939 throughout the years of apartheid right up to the establishment of the Bantu stands. And so to try and aggregate that into a story of loss that on its own needs to be fully accounted for in historical terms, I think was a very fascinating journey. The second was uh, to think about apartheid as well as an economic institution, in terms of which I call this a clever trick. I'd say the clever trick of apartheid was to create this seemingly functioning normal market. But it's really a market based on racial dispossession, so that by the end of apartheid in the 1990s, formal apartheid, I mean, not all of apartheid, in the 1990s, people were talking loosely about a market, but they were not interrogating that this is a market founded on racial discrimination and dispossession. So if you are going to talk about a property market, you need to factor in that this is a market artificially constructed. The other would be the interrogation of the concept of private property the ways in which that concept of private property was a colonial imposition, private property over land in particular, as a colonial imposition. But the paradox is that the anti-colonists, particularly the ANC, came to adopt private property as a mode of struggle. They were themselves fighting for the right to own private property, even though the concept itself is European in its origin. And how, in fact, that idea and adherence to private property has now come to constrain land reform because post the apartheid era, post the constitutional era, the ANC has remained wedded to this notion of private property. And I interrogate whether or not it is possible to talk of an agrarian reform on a revolutionary scale if you are wedded to the notion of private property. And then the last of the four is probably interrogating the role of the banks. Again, a largely understudied topic, particularly because they usually raise these fears about an expropriation without compensation likely to just sweep all of the wealth of the country that is held in the banks. And I try to unpack that and to try and understand how the banking system actually functions and what are the likely implications of a system or a regime of an expropriation without compensation. So I would say probably those four are new ideas coming through in this book. Wonderful. Let's get to it. You may have been following events in the U.S. where a House panel advanced a decade-old effort to pay reparations to descendants of slaves. There's still some way to go in the U.S., but now this has entered the legislative track meaning that it cannot be ignored. In New Zealand, reparations have taken various forms, money, 
land and an apology. And also they've gone beyond just land dispossession to what they refer to as cultural dispossession. At the beginning in your book, you talk about reparations, especially the failures of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to hold uh, corporates to account, that is the corporates that cropped up the apartheid. I mean, to quote this section, you, you argue that the TRC had special powers of subpoena, yet it failed to exercise them and only expressed regret at the failure of the oil companies to present evidence uh, at the commission. Now, I would like to, given all this history of dispossession, what you refer to as structural violence, Surely there is a case for reparations in South Africa. And where do you stand? What was the book meaning? I mean, it's an incomplete aspect of the book, in my view. Is there a chance for a reparation movement in South Africa to restore the dispossessed land and other forms of property to the black community? You are right. That part of the discussion on reparations as an idea is introduced in the book, but it is an incomplete subject. But that's precisely the point, isn't it? And the ways in which I debate the topic is by reference to this idea of a crime against humanity and to look at a global movement in relation to how crimes against humanity have been dealt with elsewhere, and particularly the situation of the Holocaust and Hitler's movement, the Nazi movement against Jewish people in Germany. And I trace that story. And then I ask whether or not there is a possibility to learn any examples from the examples of how Jewish society took control and drove the reparations movement itself, took control and it drove the reparations movement. And it decided what the forms for reparations ought to be. It decided when the reparations would take place. And I also explore how at the beginning, there were gestures of good faith. Those gestures failed and ultimately coercion had to take place. And I asked if reparations as an idea is wholly dependent on people who benefited from a crime against humanity, how is it that we can realistically think about it. Do I think that there should be reparations? Yes. What I do say in the book is that you cannot think about land without quantifying the concept of loss. And if you quantify the concept of loss, as you were putting it at the beginning, basically an aggregated sense of loss, where we lost cattle, we lost the land, we lost culture, we lost economically, we lost through slavery. It is not possible to think of recompensing those losses through a quote-unquote narrow conception of the quote-unquote return of the land, and that you've got to think broadly about this. Now, we had this idea before through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but its terms of reference were narrow. The debate as to whether or not land should be included in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was dismissed before it could gain any form of traction. When the TRC published its own report, it recommended, based on this idea of a gross violation of a human right, that certain persons falling within that category ought to be compensated. 
But reparations as a structural remedial program have always been dismissed in South Africa. And the role of big business who benefited directly from apartheid. And in the book, I refer to this example of the first day of the TRC hearings into the role of business, where all of these people, the captains of industry, show up at the TRC and they are sitting on the same line and on the same level as ordinary people, but they are coming to account. And one of them, Johan Rupert, makes this claim, forgive us for Steve Biko, but it is an incomplete claim because he does not explain why they should be forgiven for Steve Biko. And I try to question if that forgiveness is in fact a genuine forgiveness in the absence of a movement towards the reparation behind that apology. That's awesome. A related uh, question is that one of the points you make in the book is the political elite at the time, when I remember, I think it was President Tabombeki, who criticized some of the class action by a social movement group to hold to account in New York some of the corporates that had you know, propped up the apartheid uh, system. And some of the arguments were related to these actions are going to chase away foreign direct investors. And that leads me to a question about property rights. I mean, you make very strong points about property rights that we can do away with these. Wasn't it the disregard of private property in the first place that rendered land expropriation in Zimbabwe a failure, along, of course, with the chronism and failures of rule of law, elements that you touch upon in your book. And also with a country that doesn't have bilateral investment treaties, how would abolishing private property play itself out globally, given that we are, as a country, we are internationally or connected to global structures of production and finance and law. Thanks. I noted that is one of the points you made in your review of my book as a critique. <laughs> in the business day. You know, Mzu, I think we've got to ask whether or not our adherence to private property as an idea constrains or facilitates land reform as a program. There are 58 million of us in this country. President Ramaphosa once announced a program, and I think I wrote about it in the business day recently, in 2018, March or April, in which he said that he was in Soweto. And he said he will now give each and every person, I think there were 13,000 titles that he said he was going to give around. Everyone was going to have a title, you know, a title date. Then he even termed this thing, title dates Fridays. You know, <laughs> so that kind of a utopian idea that you will give titles to everybody who lives in Alex and give title to everyone who lives in Soweto without a fundamental restructuring of their relationship to property. We've got to ask whether or not that is, in fact, our envisaged conception of land reform. It's by dividing up the shacks and each inhabitant of the shack getting a piece of paper. Now, that notion is itself based on an idea by a Peruvian economist, Hernando de Soto, who wrote a book called The Mystery of Capital, in which he said what is constraining the development of developing nations is that they don't have formal title to the land. For the most part, the land tends to be held in informal ways. 
and in communal ways. And it is by breaking the communality of the holding of the land and the informality and giving people title that you can convert what he called dead capital into active capital. He assumed that if you had a title over your shack, a bank would give you a loan against the security of the shack. In this country, this was tried. It was a spectacular failure because it turned out that the banks, in fact, look at income rather than a piece of paper, which is intended to be title. So the idea that giving title to each and every one of us will ultimately enable us to control the land has been proven to be a failure. What we need, we need more land. We need more land. And where to get the land is in relation to private land that is currently held by essentially the white farming community. If you look at the statistics that I draw out in the book, I'm talking about 4% of white commercial farmers hoarding 71% of commercial agricultural land. Now, as an idea, private property is not in fact being practiced in South Africa. 22 million Africans live under communal systems of tenure. They live under chiefs where there is, in fact, no private property. Those people are locked out of the economy. They are not locked out because of lack of private property. They are locked out because of the lending policies of the banks. So a bank doesn't take into account the fact that you've got 500 cattle as an asset against whom a loan can be advanced. They just don't regard that at all. What they want is a salary. Even if that salary is ultimately, you can be fired in a day or two. But the fact that I've got a thousand cattle in the villages of KZN is simply not a factor to be taken into account. So this is why I am skeptical about the slavish adherence to private property as an idea. I think it constrains rather than opens up the avenue for real structural change. Okay, that's clear, Tembeka. There's an important point that you make in the book about the failure of the constitutional project. You make a citation of Mandela's speech in 1962 before the judge and how he was envisioning a process to address inequalities or inequities in society, especially as they pertain to issues that you discussed you know, related to disposition, etc. Now, fast forward to 1994, the CODESA, you had a political project, the 1994 so-called democratic breakthrough, and it is bereft of an economic content, apart from, of course, the black economic empowerment that comes a little later to benefit the elites. But, you know, there was this expectation, this euphoria initially, that the constitutional project would take us to a nirvana. What has gone wrong with the constitutional project? And is the constitution sacrosanct or was it designed in the first place to serve the ends of substantive change in society? Yeah, thanks. Yes, I've got a full discussion on this as you as you rightly point out. So what we've come to what has come to dominate the discourses on the constitution is obviously this idea of expropriation of land without compensation. I mean that's a narrow part of the section. But 
What I try to do in the book is to broaden the conversation into the constitutional paradigm as a whole and its potential for socioeconomic transformation. What is fascinating is that in 1996, well, prior to 1996, there was a big debate between, on the one side, the forces of transformation largely represented by the ANC, and on the other side, the forces of the status quo largely represented by the National Party and their spokesperson, very articulate and forceful person, was uh, Sheila Kamara. The debate around the framing of the property clause was obviously at the forefront. The demand of the ANC, there were three primary demands, was that there should be no property clause at all, no private property clause. You know, the standard property clause that says every person is entitled to own and hold property in accordance to law. Second demand was to empower the state to expropriate in the public interest. Third demand was to inscribe in the text of the constitution the right to restitution. Those were so contentious and heavily debated and opposed by the National Party. They were also opposed, one of the points that is covered in the book, by the judiciary as well. Chief Justice Corbett wrote two papers in which, firstly, he explained the difficulties and then bemoaned the absence of the protection of private property in the draft constitution at the time. The ANC triumphed in relation to all three. The constitution did not prescribe the right to hold and to dispose of property. Instead, it had a right not to be deprived of property except in accordance with the law. Secondly, it triumphed because it got a right of expropriation subject to the public interest, subject to just an equitable compensation. When the National Party wanted to compromise on compensation, it would only do so on the basis that it would be market-related compensation, but it totally failed on that. Thirdly, the ANC got the right to restitution inscribed in the Constitution. The only compromise related to what is the date from the calculation of the right to restitution. 19th of June, 1913, which I am very critical about in the book. So, but a year later, Mzu, a year after 1996, in 96 we signed this constitution on the 1st or 2nd of May. In 1997, the ANC adopts a policy paper called the White Paper on Land Reform and Agriculture, in which it inscribes as a matter of government policy, the willing seller, willing buyer approach. And so right at the beginning, you had this incongruence between on a constitution on the one side that rejects a market-based formulation, rejects willing seller, willing buyer, and is based on the notion of justice and equity, which is intended to restore the past. But on the other hand, you have state policy, which is based on this idea of willing seller, willing buyer. That state policy obviously must be understood in the context of a macroeconomic strategy that was adopted at the same time, GEAR, which basically committed the ANC rather to a market fundamentalist approach to land reform. So the constitutional project is immediately then constrained by a macroeconomic strategy that is focused on what is called willing seller, willing buyer. And the ANC has continuously followed 
the willing seller, willing buyer approach. Right, in fact, Mzu, up until now, as we speak today, when the government acquires land for its own purposes, it still buys the land on this fiction of a market. So the constraint was a structural one, but the other constraint was a broad macroeconomic strategy, which immediately restrained the ability of this constitution to play this transformative role. There was also a judicial problem. When the constitution began, some judges took the view that if you are going to calculate compensation, you've got to start with the market because they claimed that the market was easily quantifiable. But even at that stage, from 97 to 1998, there were already dissenting voices around the idea of the quantifiability of a market-based standard. But that theory has now been fundamentally rejected. It's been shown repeatedly that even the so-called willing seller, willing buyer in an expropriation context is nothing but a legal fiction. And then, of course, there are problems we talk about today of implementation and of corruption. But what I try to show in the book is that we've got to remember the structural constraints to the transformative project of the Constitution before we talk about questions of implementation and before we talk about questions of corruption. Those, of course, have dogged the process themselves, but I think they should be understood in the context of this large structural constraint. That's fantastic, Tembeka. I share those views quite strongly. I think questions of corruption and implementation have have been used almost as a red herring, if not to delegitimate very important concerns uh, on the failure to redress the past and the failure to reverse the decades, if not centuries, of dispossession of Black South Africans. And these are struggles that are not going to go away. One of the points you discuss in the book is that the land reform processes have failed to address gender imbalances in land ownership. You argue, for an example, that um, the fact that uh, there are so few women who have benefited from land redistribution is reflective of the power wielded by white men who dominate commercial agricultural land, close quote. And then the book goes on to propose uh, some legislative measures. Can you say something about this form of inequity and how it can be reversed? Yeah, thanks. I mean, actually, maybe that should have been one of the topics that stand out for me at the beginning. But that's a great point. I mean, land reform is patriarchal. It is also masculine. The people who make the decisions, people who are pushing paper are men, The people who benefit from land reform are men. When there is an occupation of vacant land, the pictures we see on television are usually pictures of men. When cops or the red ants are sent to evict, we usually see men. So it has become a very patriarchal and a masculine enterprise. That is also reflected, I'm afraid, in the actual statistics. If you look at the statistics of who has benefited from the land restitution program, only 35% has gone to women or women-headed households. If you look at who has benefited from the land redistribution program, particularly the farm lease project, what you again find there is that more than 60% of the beneficiaries there have tended to be men. So that could be a reflection of essentially a patriarchal culture that is still dominant in South Africa. And it is also inconsistency because on the one hand, government rhetoric is let's put women first, but actual practice is women are waiting 
Yet, here is a fascinating story which I try to deal with in the book. There is the 1985 song, Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves. Women are not waiting to be empowered by men. In reality, they are engaged in their own empowerment programs. As if men do not exist, as if men do not count. That is the most inspiring story. I talk about the the book starts with the story of Princess Emma, but it ultimately ends on that chapter with the story of the Americana women. And to try and question this idea that the men came to work in the mines and they're sending money back home to the villages of KwaZulu-Natal or the villages of Fender, to show that in the one specific instance of those women who were in the Transkai area, they were able to sustain their own men through remittances coming from the villages into Rustenburg. And how they did so was as a consequence of a small agricultural project that was run under the control of Whipold. And the only way Whipold could do it is because it was able to stand as surety to negotiate, but the banks could lend in a different way by looking at communal land without asking for title, by looking at cattle without asking for different brand of an asset. So in that chapter, I show how the system, the official policy has remained patriarchal. And yet on the ground, women are in fact engaged in systems of own empowerment, not assisted by men, but driving it from below. And I came to the conclusion that actually, instead of the government assuming that it is going to save women from patriarchal oppression. It should be assisting them with the projects that they themselves have begun, because those are the more likely to be successful rather than projects imposed from top to bottom. Just a follow-up on this, Tembeka, the one way in which dispossession expressed itself was decidedly cultural and by Black men. I think, you know, some of us would know a female member of our family or kinship structure who was dispossessed of an inheritance by, you know, her older brother or an uncle by virtue of the agenda. It's one of the points that the late Dr. Vuyo Mahlati used to make, you know, self-referencing, you know, her own situation. And she was passionate about land issues. I think you served with her on the land advisory panel. But how do you compensate for something of that sort without you know going beyond helping those who are helping themselves and recognizing that there are millions out there whose capabilities are constrained and may need the support of government and also ways in which ways that kind of privilege them above say men in land reform processes is there a framework that you would propose you know the way i think generally speaking about compensation for disposition is not necessarily to fix upon a particular time in history but to think about this as a project to secure the future because if you look at the restitution program itself, which fixes upon a time, 19 June 1913, its limitations are obvious because at that point, the entirety of what is called South Africa has already been taken. In fact, even South Africa itself has been established essentially as a white country from 1910. But 1913 is too late because most of the land was taken during the colonial era. So to think of land as a purely restitutive project itself is limiting. So I try to say in the book that ultimately we've got to think about this idea of 
compensation or restoration as a future-looking idea. So in other words, we've got to ask, what kind of a future do we want? Now, if we started asking that question, and the Freedom Charter is also a good example, you know, the land belongs to all who work it. And I grew up in the Transkei. The reality is that the men were in the mines, they in the factories. The people who were working the land, they were the women. But the land still doesn't belong to them. It still belongs to the men. So the one thing is to dismantle the structures of patriarchy. Because the reason why even where land is restored to a family, the officials themselves, and I've seen this, the land is restored to a family because it was dispossessed in 1913 or after 1913. And the officials go and look for the eldest male member of the family. They won't give it to the woman. And then you have instances of communal land, particularly under the control of chiefs, Even there, what you find is the allocation models are still discriminatory against women. So, I mean, we've got obviously the constitution that says there should be no discrimination, et cetera. But I think we really have to think about the kind of society we're trying to build. Uh, Some few questions from the chat line. One is bemoaning the fact that land reform uh, has so far benefited the elite. This is from Itumeleng Rabotapi. Is on Facebook. And then there's a question from Mauritius, from Jimmy. He gives an example of the Mauritian case where Truth and Justice Commission was put in place and it investigated the legacy of slavery. But the problem with determining compensation is about beneficiary selection. How do you select beneficiaries in these processes? From a friend, Busani, he makes a point that the Dutch never believed uh, that there were people when they arrived here, that they found the land empty. What would be your view? And uh, Khaupelelwe is asking a question. He bemoans corruption, uh, some of the points that you have already addressed, but also maybe you may want to say something more about quantification of compensation. I know you're not really talking so much about monetary compensation. You do also touch in part of your book, you talk about education, I know in New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, there was a delineation of airspace along with land, spectrum, every new opportunity should be looked at through the lens of historical dispensation. I know there's a talk about a cannabis master plan, which could be you know, a new gold in the economy. Shouldn't dispossession be a lens through which we are pushing new forms of opportunity going forward into the future? Maybe let me start with, with Musani's point. You know, Van Riebeek himself did not believe that this was a terra nullius. In his diaries, he wrote virtually all of the Khoikhoi tribes that he encountered. And he was quite clear that he was exchanging with them some form of creating a form of commerce with them. And of course, the whole thing fell apart because the Dutch wanted more and more meat and the Khoikhoi were unwilling to constantly trade with them on the unfair terms that the Dutch had imposed. But he never believed that the land was empty because he knows that when he arrived here, there were people. The same thing with Van der Stel. Both Simon and Adrian Van der Stel, when they wrote, they were quite clear that there were people here. What happened, Mzu, was that much later, in the reconstruction of Africana nationalism, and they began to rewrite history and to rewrite themselves into the story. One of the fascinating books is by F.A. Van Jasfeld called The History of South Africa from an Africana Perspective. 
where he, he begins by this idea of the Afrikaner as people chosen by God and uses biblical references to explain this idea of being chosen by God and says at some point the, the Israelis also thought they had been chosen by God. The British at some point believed that they had been chosen. But this was all part and parcel of the reconstruction of the imagination and the identity of being an African. And it is during that period that they began these concepts of Terranilius, that actually there was no one in this country when we arrived. But the actual original documents that they wrote when they arrived here are quite clear that they know they found people. Today, you find it in the history books at universities and at high schools, this idea repeatedly being spewed around that uh, South Africa was an empty piece of ground. But it's all part and parcel of a reconstruction of history as justification for oppression. And it is a fairly recent idea. It's actually an idea of the 1960s when they were rewriting their entire historiography. So one cannot take that too seriously. They never believed that there were no people. They knew there were people. It's, it's a fairly recent idea. And I often laugh, actually, when I hear this idea still being repeated in the debates about land. I mean, I do quote in the book one of the Africans' prime ministers in 1973, also spewing the rubbish. But it was a relatively new concept, which a lot of, quote-unquote, African intellectuals at the time bought Many African intellectuals have rejected the idea even now, and they obviously are thinking about ways of coexistence. And that's what South Africa has always been about. It's been about finding ways of coexistence. Yeah, and I mean, this point about how do you choose beneficiaries, that's why I chose the example of the Holocaust. Because if you are dealing with mass dispossession, which is about creating an identity and then oppressing everyone based on that identity. It's not really practical to think about a beneficiary and how they should be selected. And that's partly the weakness in the TRC model. The TRC model worked on the basis that those individuals who could show that their human rights had been violated in a gross manner could come and claim money. But once you do that, you're going to get a 1,000 people in a society of 50 million. But if you understand apartheid to be a structure, to be a system, then of course each and every person is a victim of apartheid oppression. If you understand colonialism to be a structure, to be a system, then you are talking about something larger. And this is precisely how the colonists thought about it. They thought they were building a structure, they thought they were building a system. And that is why they created race. And so if you are going to talk seriously about a project of reparations, it must be a project that presupposes that every black person is a victim of colonialism and every black person is a victim of apartheid. And once you start from that premise, most of the debates actually go away. What you are left with is, oh, well, what is the best way of creating this equitable society? So I think that the last speaker was about quantification of compensation in relation to an expropriation, if I, if I don't... Uh, if I understand it uh, properly, yeah. because there's compensation yeah. in relation to reparations, and there's also compensation in relation to white people who still hold land that must be taken by the government for purposes of redistribution. I mean, there is a model proposed in the Constitution, which is justice and equity. There has still been no competing, I mean, theoretically sound 
competing model. This is a model applied in one of the grossest societies when it came to human rights violations in Germany uh, after the Holocaust. This idea of justice and equity as a standard of compensation, that is where it's developed from. And it's been applied in Germany. And we then adopted it here after its introduction in Namibia in 1989, and we adopted it here. It still remains the most appropriate model of working out how to pay white people who are giving up assets for wider redistribution on the basis that they are previously they are previously advantaged on unfair grounds. Unless you apply that model, I mean, a model that is one size fits all, simply doesn't work. And the reason you've got to always think about justice is because it forces you to think about what was unjust in the present holding that you need to create an equitable climate for. And so that's the model that, but what I try to do in the book is to unpack what that model actually means in practice because a lot of people complain that it is an unworkable, ubiquitous, loose, vague, imprecise model. But I show actually that it is not imprecise and that it is capable of being put in a tangible setting. Yes, and the point about land reform benefiting the elites, I mean, I say that it's actually not surprising. I mean, many post-colonial societies, particularly in Africa, the first persons who are on the chew of benefiting whenever there's liberation are the guys that are close to the politicians. And that's why I say in the book that we cannot leave this to be run by politicians because what do they do? They always start by lining up their own pockets. Zimbabwe is a perfect example. Yeah, that leads me to the question by Arthur Pierre. He makes a point that it's the lack of policy coherence, political will, and ethical integrity of the current governing party in relation to land issues that has hobbled land reform. As a final point or question as we move towards closure, I would also like you to reflect on the banks. You make a very strong point in the book that uh, the banks contributed to structural violence in history through excluding many black people from accessing means to acquire property or to advance themselves. And many of the mortgages are held by the banks, mortgages of farmland. If I get my figures right, I think it was something in the order of 168 billion rands, not sure. And they are a party to land reform debates. For an example, a business association of South Africa, BASA, is quite vocal on on these issues related to land expropriation. What would you say to the banks, you know, when they raise concerns that um, uh, this will amount to destruction of value? I mean, you know, I think firstly, the banking is central to the functioning of South Africa's economy. So one should not underestimate the extent to which they are important. But banking has become also so ubiquitous. I cannot think of a single South African who can live a meaningful life without a bank account. All of us need bank accounts from children, disabled people, from old people. Everybody needs a bank account. Even if you are banking via SASA, you still need to go to the post office and open a bank account. So if you are thinking about banking as this institution that has come to dominate and control our lives, we should probably start thinking about it as a human right. And if it is a human right, there are certain impositions that are imposed by society 
on institutions that wield so much power, and yet they are only privately regulated and not publicly regulated. There are certain obligations that they owe us. One of them, as you have pointed out, which I critique them about, is structural exclusion through imposing policies, whether they are redlining, or sometimes even if there is no redlining policies, the actual decision-making that works in ways that are structured or designed to exclude certain people, primarily black people, alternatively propertyless or assetless people. Banks have this idea that they function through assets. And so if you're thinking about banking as ubiquitous and central to our lives, they bear the obligation not to perpetuate the structural inequalities. And there are many things that they can do. One of the points that I make in the book is if you think about the banks and the ways in which they have been opposed to any model, not of expropriation without compensation, any model of justice and equity as a form of compensating. What it simply means is that the banks want to be excluded from the risk of restoring historical disadvantages in this country. But you cannot have an entity that is an island in the context where the entire national project is about the restoration in order to create a stable economy. So the third point about the banks is that not only can they not perpetuate structural inequalities, but they must decide to be part and parcel of the reconstruction of society. Now that means thinking seriously about their involvement in the constitutional project at the heart of which is reparations, the restoration and the creation of an equitable society. And I ultimately conclude that if you put all of the numbers together, their own claims and the impact of expropriation without compensation, largely the claims are vastly exaggerated. It is not as if introducing expropriation without compensation on a targeted basis for specific classes of property will bring down the entire banking industry crashing. Tamek, I'm inclined to leave it at that while we're still on a high, and I don't want us to give too much away from the book. We've only really touched the surface. I want to assure the participants it really is a well of knowledge, uh, hours and hours and hours of historical archiving that's gone into this book. I would say without any doubt that this is the first book on the history, on the political economy of South Africa that I've read, that's written after 1980. And I think it will be a reference point for many years to come. It is something for decision makers in government. It is something for researchers on land issues. It is something for the private sector. And especially at this critical juncture, when land issues are occupying the attention of legislators in parliament uh, and uh, at the heart of the conversations between the private sector, that is the agriculture groups and government. So I think it's a timely book. It's a fantastic uh, piece of research and well done on this, Tembeka. And yeah, and all the best on the grueling speaking tour. I will be putting pressure on you to bring out more of this material. And to all the participants, thank you so much for being part of this event and for posing very engaging questions um, until we speak next time. Thank you, Prof. I'm very pleased that you've organized this. And uh, I know you've got something coming, but I'm sure you will announce it 
in uh, <laughs> the time. <laughs> don't spoil it, don't spoil it, don't spoil it. <laughs> Let's just call it something. <laughs> <laughs> something, yeah. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast was brought to you by, by, by the Viz School of Governance. For more information, visit their website on www.vits.ac.za slash WSG.